Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Romans in chapter 14. This week I have two hours and 40 minutes on the camera so I can preach for that amount of time. Till they throw us out of here, because we're going to be watching some horrible movie. Romans chapter 14, and believe it or not, we are going to go from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. It says, "Let us therefore judge one, an- let us not therefore judge one another anymore." But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. For For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith, have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemns not himself in that thing which he allows. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eats not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thankful that you've given us your word as we just sang, Lord. Just thankful that we have line upon line and precept upon precept. And you've called us to go through your word that way, Lord. And I pray that as we do and as we have been, that we would be faithful with your word. I pray that you would cause me to be faithful with your word this morning, Lord. And That through your word, we can grow more to to love you and to serve you and to worship you and to serve one another and to love one another. We're just thankful that you've given us eyes to see and ears to hear. You've given us your spirit of understanding. And I pray for that this morning, that you give us wisdom and understanding in your text. In the name of Christ, amen. Apart from some of the debate that went on this week, I'm drinking coffee in the sanctuary. So let me give a little bit of review on this. Um, Obviously, I've done it every week since we got out of there, but Romans 1 through 11, Paul deals with his doctrinal portion of Romans. And in chapter 12, he starts with the more practical, not as though doctrine is not practical, and I've mentioned this before. we can't make a hard divide in it like that. We can, though, see that 
Paul in Romans 1 through 11 is teaching us the implications of the gospel. He's teaching us what the gospel is and what it means to us. And then from Romans chapter 12 to the end of the the book, he's teaching us now how we should live in response to that. That's why he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. And he's taught us how we how God has gifted us within the church and how we should use our gifts and lay them down for one another. How we should serve one another with our gifts and our talents. He also taught us that how we should respond when we are persecuted by others. It says, bless them and curse not. We're to bless those that persecute us. He's taught us that we should obey the government. You know, those words are hard to to form in my mouth, that's what the Word of God says. Now, here in chapter 14, if you remember, I said uh, from chapter 14 to chapter 15, I believe to be about verse 7, Paul has this overarching uh, kind of doctrine that he's teaching us is that we are to receive one another. And remember when it talked about being receiving one another, it talked about being in fellowship with one another. The word meant to be face to face with one another. So you, it's to, to receive them, give them a right hand of fellowship, and to be face to face with one another. And that's the overarching thing that Paul's been teaching us from Romans chapter 14, is that we receive one another, even the weaker brother, the one that you don't agree with on everything. You still receive that person because they are in the faith. It's faith. It says the weaker brother in the faith. And he's taught us not to judge them because maybe they aren't free to eat this or drink that. So don't judge them. But the opposite was true as well, remember? The weaker brother ought not to judge the stronger brother. The brother that that is free to eat, you ought not to judge that brother. Because your conscience won't allow it. And now we're in this portion of... uh, Instead of not judging your brother, we are also to not make them stumble. And that's, that's where we're at right here. And to give you a little intro, I'm, I'm going to break down these verses a little different than their order. So we're not going to go verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. We're going to go verse 13, 14, 15. Jump up to verse 21, 22, 23. And then back to 16, 17, 18, and 19. So my three points are with, without any alliteration. Um, it's do not cause to stumble a child of God. Wine, as in drinking wine, for the glory of God. And building up in the kingdom of God. So our first point is here, do not cause to stumble a child of God. Look at verses, uh, verse 13. Paul says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. So he starts out this verse by saying, let us not judge one another anymore. So this follows on the previous section about not judging your brother for what he eats or drinks or esteeming one day above another. Remember we saw that. He follows it by saying simply, stop it. Let us not do this anymore. Let us not judge our brother or sister because they eat or they don't eat or they drink or they don't drink or they observe a day or they don't observe a day. Let us not do that anymore. Let us put an end to it. 
That's what Paul is pretty much saying. But he does say, but judge this, rather. He says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this, rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So judge this, rather, that you do not put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in your brother's way. Before I get into what this is actually saying, I want us to see what this is not saying. And it's probably obvious, but I still want us to see it. This word for stumbling block here is used a few times in the New Testament. And I want to see a couple of those uses. If you just turn back probably a page or two to Romans chapter 9 and verse 32. Paul says, wherefore, because they sought it, not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. What is the stumbling stone right here? What is the stumbling block that is, that is right here? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, if you will, it's sola fide. It's the fact that, that you can't earn your salvation, that you cannot please God by your works. That's what the Jews were seeking after. That's what Paul's dealing with. If you want to go back, we have them on YouTube. You can go back and listen to them. But that's what Paul's dealing with right here is the Jews were seeking the righteousness of God by the works of the law. And Paul is saying, you can't do it. It's that your works, they don't please God, and they actually are the cause of your damnation. It's no matter how good you think you are, your own righteousness is not enough for you to stand justified in the courtroom of God. Nobody in this room, nobody on the face of the earth will stand on the court, in the courtroom of God on that day and say, I'm justified by my works. I did enough. Nobody will. And that was to the Jews a stumbling block. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, but we preach Christ crucified. Remember, they want a sign. They want wisdom. But what does he say? But we preach Christ crucified. And then he says, unto the Jews a stumbling block. Why is Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jew? Well, multiple reasons. One I just dealt with, it shows that they aren't good. And remember, Jesus dealt with this with the rich young ruler. He says, I've done all these things since my youth. He said, one last thing. Sell everything you have. Follow me. Well, Jesus didn't add to the law by saying that. He just showed that you hadn't been doing these things since your youth. You are covetous. The law tells you not to be covetous. But you are because you won't sell everything you have and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah of God. So they had a concept that they were good by the works of the law. And Jesus says to him, remember what he says to him? There are none good except one that is God. So that was their mindset. They thought they were good by the works of the law. So when you preach Christ crucified, it's that Christ was crucified for the sins of his people. Remember Jesus said, uh, the, the whole need not a physician. He wasn't saying that there was actually whole people. W-H-O-L-E. 
He's not saying there's actually healthy, whole people. But in their minds, they thought they were whole. They thought, I am whole. I am perfect. I am good. But those that are sick need the physician. Those who are the sinners need the physician. It was a stumbling block because they thought that they were good. Not only that, they saw the Messiah as the coming king who would set up an earthly kingdom and do away with the wicked. Now, little did they know that he really did do that. And he's continuing to vanquish his enemies. They saw it as an instantaneous thing, though. They thought when the Messiah comes, he was going to take out Rome and, and set up his kingdom right there physically in Israel, and that was going to be it. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God, what did he say it was like? Leaven that you put into a lump, and it permeates the whole lump. He said it was like a mustard seed, a little tiny seed. Jesus said it was the smallest seed. And you put it into the ground. And what does it do? Right when you put the mustard seed into the ground, it does not explode into the big giant tree. It slowly grows. So it was a stumbling block because the Messiah to them wasn't supposed to come and to die or to suffer, but to rule and to reign. And like I said, he is ruling and reigning. He did set up his kingdom. And he is overthrowing the wicked ones. Just not in the way that they want it done. So that is not what this stumbling block is in Romans 14. Also it states in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. There are those that stumble at the word. That's what that says. The stumbling block is the word. And I believe we can rightly interpret that to be the word of the gospel. The word of preaching Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to some. Who? According to Peter, to the unbelieving and disobedient. However, Paul is not telling us in Romans 14 to not preach Christ crucified because it's a stumbling block. That's not what he's saying. That's what I said. It's pretty obvious that's not what he's saying, but I wanted to deal with that. What Paul is saying is do not let your eat what you eat or drink or partake in cause your brother to stumble. Look back at uh, Romans 14, verse 14 and 15. Paul says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not char charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Paul says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, do not eat it. That's what this is saying. 
It's not saying don't preach the gospel to someone if it's a stumbling block to them. It's saying in reference to your brother or sister in Christ, if it offends them that you're going to eat a pork sandwich, abstain from it. Don't do it. Or to put it another way, if what you are free to do in Christ makes your brother stumble, abstain from it. Look down at verse 21. It says, It is good neither to eat flesh, which is meat, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. He says, It is good to not do these things if it causes your brother to stumble. Right? That's what it says right there. So if it's good to not do these things, that means it's bad if you do do these things. If your eating of the meat causes your brother to stumble, it is bad if you're going to do it. If your weaker brother is in the, your presence and you decide, decide to eat the very thing that offends him knowingly, you're in sin. It's not sin for you to eat it, but it's sin for you to offend your brother. I wish we would take this into consideration more. Especially within us reformed folk. Because we don't really deal with often with those coming out of the... Remember, this is talking about Jews that were coming out of the Old Covenant system. Remember the time period they're in was that transition period between about 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. where the Jews, though they were believing in the Messiah, they did not know about Jesus yet that came to be the Messiah. And they were still practicing those Old Testament laws, which would include the dietary laws. So now they come into the church, and remember, they don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. They don't have these letters yet. They don't have the New Testament yet. So they come into the Gentile church, and they're so used to never touching or even looking at pork or shellfish or, or any of those things that were forbidden. They were, they, and then they come into your church, and you Gentile, you're sitting there eating a ham. And they're offended. But we don't really deal with that much here. But we do live in a time when people that come into the church may have been full-blown alcoholics. And though we are free to drink alcohol in Christ, we are not free to offend our brother by it. Because even though you're free to eat or drink, it doesn't mean that he is. Look at verses 22 and 23. Hast thou faith? Now this is just talking about, hast thou faith that what you're eating is clean and, and you can offer it in thanksgiving to God? Have it to your, yourself before God. Happy is he that condemns not himself in that thing which he allowed. This is saying, happy are you if you're not condemned by eating something that God has already allowed. And he that doubts is damned if he eats. Condemned. It's a sin for him. Why? It says, because he eats not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. He's not free because he doubts and he doesn't eat in faith. Remember going back to the beginning of this chapter, this is the weaker brother who is questioning what is true about this issue. 
He's deliberating within himself. Remember that? He's having inward reasoning. And then that, he thinks that it's sin to eat or to drink. So therefore, it is sin for him to eat or drink. If they believed that it was sin for them to eat pork, and they did it, it was sin. Now let me balance this out before we move on. This does not mean that when God clearly commands something, we can say, my conscience won't allow me to do that. If God has clearly commanded something, your conscience bows to the Word of God. I say we deal with that with the Lord's Supper, don't we? What does God command we do with the Lord's Supper? To eat unleavened bread and to drink wine. That's the only commands we have in the New Testament about that. Those are commands, and we don't get to disobey them because our conscience, which is fallible, by the way, says otherwise. And also, be careful, if you will, of one they would say, you know, the professional weaker brother. The one whose conscience is always by, bothered by what others are doing. Y'all probably know these people. The one who is always condemning everything for everything they do. The one who makes up laws and rules that they think everyone must live by. Remember the commands here are to not judge one another. That's for both sides of it. Whether you're the stronger brother or the weaker brother, you are not to judge one another. You are to receive one another. If you're the weaker brother, that doesn't mean that everyone else is in sin. It just means that you don't understand the word of God in that area yet. These professional weaker brethren are usually the types that would deem you unsaved. You're not even saved. That person's not even saved because they smoke or they drink. Now this might get into offending some people in here. Or they celebrate a certain holiday. And we're coming up on a day that everyone argues about every year, right? Halloween, we celebrate Reformation Day. But, you know, they say, if you dress up your child, I was going to use Super Mario, but we got Sonic the Hedgehog in here today. If you dress up your child like Sonic the Hedgehog and get him some candy, you're going to hell. I literally saw a Facebook post that said, Nah, son, we don't dress up like that and go door to door to get candy except the days that we're worshiping Satan. I was like, that's taking it a little far. And that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about here. Who are we to judge our brother for doing something the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn? Is it sinful to dress up my child today and get him candy? Would it be sinful for that? Would it be sinful if I dressed up Sophia and Titus and took them door to door knocking on doors and got candy from people? Is that sinful? You say no. Why is it sinful three weeks from today? If it's sinful to drink and smoke, then why did the Word of God not condemn it? Which takes me right to my next point. Wine for the glory of God. This actually was not even going to be part of the outline or the message. 
But while I was writing, I felt the need to expound on this a little bit more. Because first it says in verse 21, It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So the implication is that these Romans were drinking wine. Right? Why would Paul bring it up if they weren't even drinking wine? Now I know those that argue that this word just it just means fruit of the vine, so it just means grape juice. Well, first, they had no way simply to have grape juice in the first century. They had no way to preserve it from fermenting into wine. That wasn't invented until 1869 by Thomas uh, Welch to replace communion wine. So apart from when it was freshly squeezed, it would start fermenting right away and turning into wine. But also, I've never seen or heard someone be offended because I drank too much grape juice. Is that what the context is talking about? It, it's not saying, will you abstain from drinking grape juice because it offends me? This makes no sense. This is talking about fermented alcoholic wine. And apart from popular opinion, wine was actually seen as a blessing from God. It says in Psalm 104, 14 and 15, it says, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that makes glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. It says in Deuteronomy 32, 28, Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heavens shall drop down dew. And listen to this verse, Jeremiah 31. I love this verse, verse 12. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow anymore at all. So corn and oil and livestock and wine were given by God as blessings to his people. But it's also to be given to those who are suffering. Turn with me, Proverbs 31. I want us to see this with our own eyes, not just take my word on this one. Proverbs 31. You often hear about the Proverbs 31 woman, but. This is before that. In verse 6. It says, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of a heavy heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty. And remember his misery no more. That's in the word of God. I didn't make that. I, I didn't write it in your Bible. It's already there. And you most certainly won't see an independent fundamental Baptist church preaching from these verses, will you? 
We can argue about the, the, the dangers of wine, and I'll cover that, but we must admit that God gives wine to his people for a blessing. The, the word of God teaches that. I mean, the first miracle of Jesus, you know what it is? Marriage supper of Cana in Galilee. Jesus turns water into grape juice. No. Jesus turns water into wine. To say it was grape juice makes no sense of the context. It says in John chapter 2 and verse 10, Every man at the beginning, talking about the beginning of the wedding, sets forth good wine. And when man has well drunk, the word there means when man is intoxicated, that's what the word actually means. It doesn't mean like, I'm not, just not thirsty anymore. That means he was drunk. Then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. So the wine, they had good wine. They put the good wine out first. And once the people were well drunk, Jesus provided better wine. Hmm. You think people drank that wine and got drunk? I bet you they did. Now you say Jesus wouldn't have made wine for man to get drunk. Didn't Jesus make the rocks that we stone one another with? Didn't Jesus make the men that would sin against him? him? Jesus, though the creator of all things, is not responsible for when we pervert those things to sin with them. Another thing we can see is obviously, as I've already mentioned, the Lord's Supper which was similar to the Passover meal. At the Passover meal, I looked at some of the history of this a long time ago. At the Passover meal, each person would drink two glasses of wine. Now two glasses of wine, for me, wouldn't get me drunk. For Jamie, it probably wouldn't get him drunk. For my wife, it might get her a little intoxicated. But they drank two glasses of wine at the Passover. However, in our Lord's Supper, which was instituted during the Passover, Jesus takes the cup that they were drinking at the Passover and what's in the cup? Wine! And He commands His disciples to drink it. God commands his people to drink alcohol. The pastor say that? I mean, that's, is that what the Word of God teaches? Yes, it does. Why did God command us to drink the wine, though? It wasn't so we could get drunk. It was to proclaim in a picture the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we do every Sunday when we partake in communion. It is to proclaim that Jesus Christ treads the wine press of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And that it was drank fully by our Lord. That His blood was spilt under that wrath and we drink wine in commemoration of that and we do so to the glory of God. Just as when, through the blessing of God, He provides wine for us, we drink it to the glory of God. There's a lot more we can see about this, about wine being permitted. You remember Paul tells Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. 
Obviously, the biblical writers and our Lord had no problem with alcohol in and of itself. So, praise God from whom all blessings flow, including wine. But now the negative. Though we are permitted to drink wine, and actually also commanded to drink wine, there is a prohibition in Scripture against drunkenness. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul quite literally says in Romans chapter 13, and verse 13, right before he says this, to not be in drunkenness. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. These are those whose lives are defined by these sins. This is not simply saying that this happened sometime during your life, but your whole life is defined by these sins. If you see this man who is always drunk, y'all know the type. You probably see him at the gas station when you're trying to pump gas. I'm just trying to get gas to get out of here. He comes up and asks me for $5. And he's already drunk. They're always stumbling around, trying to get to their next drink. They typically have destroyed their families and those around them because they're given to the bottle. Everything about their life is about another drink. And you know why they shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It's not simply because their works are evil, though that is true. It's not simply because they are getting drunk, because, but that is true. But because alcohol is their God. That's the problem with these people in this list. It's not simply sin, but that these things are a God to them. The adulterer, the idolaters, the drunkard, the reviler, these things are their gods. They go about their whole lives following after them, and therefore they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Because they follow after the God of this world, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? So here's to sum up this point, which I think is very important in our day. Yes, alcohol is fine to have. Yes, it is a blessing from the Lord. Yes, you can drink alcohol to the glory of God. However, we are to abstain from drunkenness. We are not to be drunkards. We are not to serve alcohol. And by that I don't mean like a bartender, but rather to worship and serve as though you're supposed to worship and serve Yahweh. Worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ and you're worshiping and serving a bottle. 
Do not let alcohol be your master, but rather, if you can, enjoy it to the word of, to the glory of God. And if one comes into your fellowship who cannot enjoy it, be loving and gracious to them and abstain from it for the glory of God and for the edification of your brother. Because look at the very next verse here in 1 Corinthians. I read to verse 11. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful to me, lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. It may be lawful to you, but don't be brought under it. Let's go to our third point here. Building up in the kingdom of God. I'm going to go back here to uh, Romans 14 verse 16. It says, let not then your good be evil spoken of. This is speaking about you being free to eat or drink or observe a day or not. I can eat that meat now because I'm free to do so and do it to the glory of the Lord and it's a good thing for me. However, if I use it to harm my brother, it says to destroy him for whom Christ died, it will be evil spoken of. So don't use your liberty in Christ for this purpose. Don't allow that good thing to be used for evil. And Paul tells us why. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It means because the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Those characteristics of the kingdom of God is not about what we eat or drink. That's not what's important. Though we may be free to eat and drink, those are not definitional to what the kingdom is. And I would say that any ministry or group that makes what we eat or drink the main thing to stay away from them. We should not separate or judge those that eat or drink different than us. And by that I mean the substance of what we eat and drink. Not necessarily the amount that we eat and drink. You see, eating and drinking can become sins if we gorge ourselves, right? Gluttony and drunkenness are sins. And they are both the result of eating and drinking. They're both really the same thing. A drunkard is one that drinks too much. A glutton is one that eats too much. Yet, you know, in the church, gluttony is fine. Drunkenness is not. Both of them shouldn't be fine. So this is not so much dealing with the substance or with the amount. This is not dealing with that, the, the drunkenness or, or gluttony, but the substance of what we eat and drink. That's not what our focus should be. It should be on a latter portion of this verse. It says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Sound like Pentecostal now. Have a joy in the Holy Ghost. This is what we see in the kingdom. Unity in these things, righteousness and peace and joy, not division on what we eat and drink. We have unity in these things and not division on those things. And if we have unity in these things, division will only come when sin or heresy comes in. 
And how are we to have our focus on those things, on, on righteousness and peace and joy? Well, first, being in the kingdom of God. Now let me say, this isn't just speaking about some future kingdom of God. I've actually just literally recently heard that argument about this verse, that this is speaking about a future, not yet future millennial kingdom of God, but that makes absolutely no sense in the context. Paul isn't saying that we shouldn't eat or drink or judge our brothers who do because in 2,000 plus years from now, we'll be in the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you are in the kingdom now and the kingdom isn't made up of eating and drinking now. So therefore, don't divide over that. However, unite in the righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So you must be part of the kingdom to obey this. And how must one be part of the kingdom? Well, Jesus said you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. So you must be born again by the Spirit and you must be in Christ to be in the kingdom. That's what being born again does. It awakens you to the realization that you are, in vile, that you are a vile sinner and in need of a Savior. And then you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And then what Paul says in verse 18 is you then serve Christ being acceptable to God and approved by men. That's the only way you're acceptable to God too. The only way you're acceptable to God is if you are born again, which means born from above and in Christ Jesus. This is not saying that if you do these things, you will be acceptable unto God. Rather, you are acceptable unto God in Christ. Therefore, you do these things. Then Paul follows in verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. And things wherewith one may edify one another. So, because you are in the kingdom, because you have been made accepted in the beloved, because you have been born of the Spirit, follow after these things. And those things are righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, and also those things which edify one another. You are in the kingdom, therefore, edify one another. This is the opposite of destroying one with the meat that you eat. This is the opposite of causing your brother to stumble or judging your brother. It's to edify your brother. It's building them up in fellowship and communion. This should be our goal to build up our brothers and sisters, never to tear them down. This is how the church is supposed to work, brother. Now I know from experience and some of you know that sometimes... People that name the name of Christ seek to tear down other Christians. However, that should never be our goal. We should never speak ill of our brothers and sisters because they don't agree on something that is not essential to salvation. We should seek their edification. Brothers and sisters, that's the Word of God. It tells us right there to edify one another, it's a command. It's not an option. Seek to build up your brother or sister, not destroy them. If you're seeking to destroy them, at best you're in sin, and at worst it might display that you don't even really know the Lord. 
Their edification is the work of God. Look at verse 20. For it, it, This means, for me, or because you, you eat this meat, destroy not the work of God. That means, put it aside. If it's going to destroy the work of God, which we can't do anyways, but if it... It's talking about the building up of your brother and sister. That's the work of God is talking about. But if it if you put it aside to build up your brother or sister, for me, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but is evil for that man who eats with offense. And the NASB, let me read it to you from the NASB. It, it's a little clearer than the KJV. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Their building up is from God. Your brothers and sisters' edification is from God. So don't seek to tear them down by your liberty in Christ. And though that meat or drink may be a blessing of the Lord to you and to be received with thanksgiving, do not use it to destroy your brother. Rather abstain from it so you can edify your weaker brother. Praise God. That we are to, we are free to enjoy the fruits of His creation to the glory of His name. However, the chief fruit of His creation is man. So therefore, do not destroy Him over your freedom. But rather build Him up. That's a great call from the Apostle Paul here to these Gentile believers who are welcome welcoming in Jewish believers who according to this text they would have been the weaker brother the Jew coming into the Gentile church would have been the weaker brother because they would have, they were the ones abstaining from the meat he tells them to seek to build them up in Christ to seek peace with them these men and women never had peace with one another before that God calls us then to have peace with them. And the peace that they were to have with them was purchased by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. Remember Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, I have it on here. Verses 13 to 14, he says, But now, now let me back up a little bit. The church of Ephesus, they were Gentiles as well. Paul is writing to another Gentile church in Ephesus, and he tells the Ephesian church there of Gentiles, but now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, you who sometimes were far off are made not near by the blood of Christ. And he says, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. What he's talking about is there were Jews and Gentiles, but through the blood of Christ, he has torn down that wall, and you guys are both one now. There is no more war between Jew and Gentile. You're at peace through, with one another by the blood of Christ. So receive them. And seek to build them up. So build up one another in the kingdom by and through the word of God, through fellowship, through communion, and through prayer, and do not tear one another down or judge one another over the freedoms that we enjoy in Christ. Let's move into our application. As though that wasn't applicable. A call to faith and repentance here. As always, to the unbelievers that may be sitting in here, to the person in here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe doesn't even know if they know the Lord Jesus Christ, 
If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not part of the kingdom. As Jesus said, you must be born again to see the kingdom. It doesn't matter what you eat or drink because all is sin to you if you're outside of Christ. Verse 23 says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If you don't believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that you do or think or say is sin. Your whole life is sin. You were born into sin and kept on that path all the days of your life. And I pray this morning you listen to this message and you look to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved from your sins. Jesus lived a perfect life, unlike you and me. He fulfilled righteousness. He kept the law. He died under the wrath of God for sinners like you and me. And when He died on that cross, what He was doing was taking away the sins of His people. He is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And we know the story three days later, He rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. He took His people's sins into the grave and came out without them. He buried their sins and broke free the chains of death. And in His words, Jesus said, if you believe in Me, you will never die. And then He said, do you believe that? Those are His words. If you believe in Jesus, you will never die. It's absolutely true. We will not take part in the second death. We will step from this life right into the next. I love that we're up here. We got this door right here, and I used it the other week. That stepping off into eternity, stepping off into death for the Christian is just like walking from this room out that door into the next. It's going from this life into the next life. This is why Jesus could say that you have eternal life. When does eternal life start? When you believed upon Him. Eternal life. It doesn't mean you have life and then you'll die and then you have life again. No, you're born again. You're made new. You're made alive. And you, you stay alive. Off into eternity. He also said if you believe in Him, you have passed from death unto life. That's such a, 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 a great verse too. Because it shows that it's a one-time act as well. You've passed from death into life one time. You can never go back. You know, the, those that people that, you know, they do the altar calls and the same people come up every single week because they will need to be born again, again, and born again, again. Because they pass from life unto death and death unto life and life unto death and death unto That does not happen. It's a one-time act. You believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You, that, that's evidence that you have passed from death into life and you're made alive and you stay alive. You have eternal life. So that's the call to you this morning if you don't know Him. Believe upon Him. Repent of your sins. Look to Him who takes away sins and be saved. And to us believers in here. Sorry if this stuff offends some of you guys, but I think it's important. You are free to eat or drink 
or observed days or not. Our measuring stick is the Word of God. This is how we define what sin is. Not our conscience, not our feelings, not our opinions, not our traditions, simply by the Word of God. That's how we define what sin is. If God says it's a sin, then it's a sin, period. If God doesn't say it's a sin, we have no right to make up new ones. God has not made us the lawmakers. He defines His law, not us. So we ought to be careful to argue that something is sin when it's not, or maybe not. Let me give you a clear example of this. Something that I've seen. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, Abstain from all appearance of evil. Boy, have I used that, seen that verse butchered by so many people. We are commanded to abstain from all appearance of evil. We can agree upon that, right? Because it says it. It says to abstain from all appearance of evil. We have to agree upon that. However, there are those that use this verse to say you can't go to a theater. Have you been around that type? I have. Or you can't go into a place like, say, the Crafty Rooster or the Grumpy Monk or Buffalo Wild Wings because they have a bar in there. They say they have the appearance of evil. Because you could be sitting going into those places. You could be going into the theater to watch a movie that is full of nudity or blasphemy or, or foul language or whatever it may be. You could be going into Applebee's to get plastered drunk. So it has an appearance of evil. Now let me ask you, does this verse say don't go into a restaurant that has a bar? That's not what the verse said, right? It just says abstain from all appearance of evil. It doesn't say don't go into a restaurant because it has a bar. That would be a clear command of God if it said that. Our traditions have added that. It simply says to abstain from all appearance of evil. So what does that mean? Well, God defines what evil is, right? We have to say that. God defines what evil is, and He defines sin as evil. The word for appearance, though rightly can be translated that way, it can and is translated as form or forms. If you have a different Bible version than KJV, it probably says abstain from all forms of evil. So it's to abstain from every form of evil. In other words, fight against sin. God defines what evil is. Evil is sin, and He says abstain from every form of sin. To, to, to fight against sin. It doesn't mean you can't dress up like Super Mario for your child. Hopefully no adults are doing it. This is to abstain from every form of sin, and sin is clearly defined in the Word of God. Not whatever tradition I want to add to that. We are on the verge of legalism by adding laws to God's Word that, that He doesn't condemn as sin. And this is quite common within the church at large, especially as I've already mentioned something with like smoking or drinking. Can those, both of those be sin? Yes, they most certainly can. But so can... Drinking coffee. So can eating pizza. 
or whatever it may be. You're like, why do you keep on bringing up those two? Well, because those two, those are two that people focus on and harp on if you partake in them, right? Those are the ones that, those are, we know they're not a believer because they smoke. I've seen them walking down the street with a cigar in his hand. I've seen them at the, sitting at, at dinner and he had a beer on for dinner. He's not a believer. Why there are 300 pound lazy glutton sitting around eating fudge rounds. <laughs> Believe it or not, God's word doesn't condemn smoking and drinking. If, he, if you think it does, you, you can show me after the service. It does condemn being giving, given over to them, though. That they control your life. You ought not to be addicted to them. And by addicted, it means that you cannot go without them. And when you have to, it's all that you can think about. We are not to be under the control of anything but the word of God and his spirit. But then you argue, but they're not good for you. Who says? The FDA? What is it? WHO? What is that? World Health Organization? Is they, they're the ones that said it? The same ones that allow the poisonous food to come onto the shelves in the grocery store? They told you that drinking wine is going to kill you? And if you want to condemn people who smoke or drink as unbelievers, you have to throw out some of the greatest preachers that the church has known. You have to throw out Martin Luther. He was German. You know he drank. We all know he drank. Charles Spurgeon. Smoke a cigar to the glory of God. That's what that was, Those were his words. Jonathan Edwards was a pipe smoker. Martin Lloyd-Jones smoked cigarettes. R.C. Sproul smoked cigarettes. And I, I'm sure, I didn't, those are off the top of my head. I'm sure I could dig and find, there's many, many more. So are we going to condemn those as unbelievers? Lloyd-Jones actually, when dealing with these texts here, brought out something I never knew before. But he said, he, he was looking through old church budgets, not of his own church, but of, of multiple churches in the area. He was looking through their older church budgets. And they would have, the pastors would have a housing budget. They have a food budget. Now listen, they had a beer budget and they had a tobacco budget. So you all falling short with me. But these budgets were for the preacher. They were for the pastor. So let us check our feelings at the door when it comes to judgment of others. And let us let the word of God define what a sin is and simply obey that. Let us believe the word of God when it says that we are free to eat or drink or whatsoever you do to the glory of God. And let us repent of thinking ill of our brothers and sisters who do some things that we don't like, but that God doesn't define a sin. And it's our call to war here. I think our call to war from this text this morning is about edifying our brother and sister in the faith. This is our call. Build them up. 
edify them. Don't tear them down. Don't gossip about them. Don't speak ill of them. But let us do, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, he says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That's a hard word right there, right? Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Are you doing that? Or are you hoarding grudges and being unforgiving to your brother or sister? Are you judging them for something that they've done in the past? You know, the scripture says love keeps no record of wrongs. Can you say this? I mean, God has forgiven you for far worse than what anybody on earth has done to you. So seek their edification. And you cannot do this if you're judging them and holding grudges with your brethren. It's not this what we are called by God to do. We of all people within the church should be the most gracious and merciful people on earth. Yet oftentimes, we sheep like to show our teeth, don't we? This ought not to be the case within the church. Yes, if someone sins or is, is in some heresy, we are called to call them out of it. Yet if they repent, what should our response be? Not, well, I, you did this six months ago. I remember you did this or you said this or you thought this or whatever. If they repent, it's gone. We receive them. Isn't this the greater context of what we're looking at? Receiving our brothers and sisters. And when we receive them, it's to fellowship and it's to edify them. Man, if we could get this down. I mean, we speak about community a lot within our church, don't we? And how can we have communion? When we're judging, backbiting, gossiping. Real, biblical community is when we are edifying one another. And listen, God doesn't use a cookie cutter when choosing is elect. It's not like he goes, you know, the same cookie cutter approach to every single person that, that he chose from eternity past. He doesn't make all of us the same. He doesn't make all of us look the same, act the same, or think the same. So we all have differences, and we will each have our sins with, which we are fighting with. Just because that person's sin is not the same as yours, it doesn't mean that they are worse than you. So seek their edification. Fight for it. We want each other built up in the faith. And I don't say this to say that we just use flattering words, but we, we build up in fellowship in the faith. We by and through the word of God being proclaimed to people and through our prayers with and for one another and through our common communion, our common faith. So let that be the central point of our relationship. Let that be the driving force behind our community. And let's come together and work together to go out into the world 
that doesn't edify one another. And take the message of reconciliation with God to them. Let's lock arms. Or as the military used to do, lock shields. Let's lock shields together. And advance the mighty name of Jesus, our King, for the advancement of His kingdom and the glory of His name. Amen. And we're going to partake in communion.